Good morning. Wherever you are, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you send your spirit upon all of us, that we might behold your Son. May it be unto us according to your word. Amen. A year and a bit ago, the first time that everything shut down, the first time that March break meant April, there was a brief period of time I remember still talking about when things get back to normal, when things get back to normal. And then for me, there was this very distinct moment about maybe a month in, maybe something happened similar for you when I realized that normal wasn't coming back. We'd get through this, there would be normal again on the far side of the pandemic, but it was going to be a new normal, not a return to what had been pre-COVID. A new normal and nobody knew what it was going to look like. And now with the competing good, bad news of vaccines and variants, but the light hopefully at the end of the tunnel, we still don't know. How are we going to act in the new normal? Are we going to snap back together? Are we going to want to be pressed together at the TTC, at a concert, at church? Or will close feel too close because you can't even breathe anymore without thinking about aerosols? And what's the mental health toll of all this on, on teens who lost all their rites of passage into adulthood? On young adults who lost a year of friendship, of dating, marriage, or fertility, on older people who missed the birth of a grandkid or their last chance to travel together. What's going to happen when the strategies of self-medication that people use to get through the pandemic persist as ingrained habits on the far side? And heavens, what has this done to a generation of kids? My youngest has had three birthdays, two of them in lockdown. She's not going to remember this, but it's shaping her for sure. How's this play out for her over the long haul? Normal's coming, but it's not coming back. So what now? Like, seriously, what now? The bewilderment that all of us are feeling maybe gives us a sliver of insight into the condition of the Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem which we heard about in our reading from Nehemiah 1. I say a sliver because as bad as the pandemic has been, the Jerusalemites were dealing with a situation of loss and rebuilding a new normal that's on an entirely different level. And some here will remember the Nehemiah Project, the building effort in the early 2000s that created this magnificent unified church footprint as a container for gospel ministry in the heart of the city. But because Nehemiah tends to be one of the lesser-known books of the Bible, a quick recap will probably be helpful for most of us, whether you're a Bible newbie or a longtime reader. And do check out the explainer video linked below. The extremely Coles Notes version is this. The Christian Bible tells the story of God's relationship with his creation and the long work of divine redemption to restore humanity to himself after we turned away in our sin. In the Jewish scriptures, which the Christians call the Old Testament, the arc of that redemption is shown primarily, primarily in God's choosing the people of Israel as a special people. God saves the Israelites from slavery and Egypt and covenanted with them to be a nation set apart under God's care 
as a witness to who God is. Covenant, that's important. File it away. We'll be coming back to that later on. Now, the Israelites' capital was Jerusalem, where God's temple was, the dwelling place of God on earth. But because the Israelites weren't faithful to God, because they broke the covenant, God allowed Jerusalem to fall to the foreign empire of Babylon around the year 600 B.C. And in the decades that followed, there were waves of deportation where the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And around 586 B.C., so a few decades later, the Babylonian army completely destroyed Jerusalem, the walls and God's temple. So now you've got this people, the Israelites, ripped from their homeland, their city destroyed, transplanted a thousand miles away into a foreign country. And there they rebuilt their lives. And there they stayed. Now fast forward 50 years. It's 538 BC and Babylon has been conquered by Persia and the Persian king Cyrus has said the Israelite exiles can go back home. So they start to go, but only the elders remember Jerusalem from before the exile because everybody else was born in Babylon. They start rebuilding. It's not back to normal. It's a new normal. Now fast forward nearly a hundred years. This is when our reading from this morning takes place. It's around 445 BC, and Nehemiah gets some visitors with a message. The walls of Jerusalem are in ruins. Now remember, the Israelites who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon have been back for twice as long as they were in exile to begin with, nearly a century back in the new normal. They rebuilt the temple, but the walls are still in ruins. Why? We'll find out later in the series. The important thing is it's been a long time, right? This is like they announced a successful vaccine in December 2020, and 100 years later, you still can't get a haircut. Okay, so that's the context for our scripture reading today. So let's pivot here and look at Nehemiah. Who is he? Well, he's the cupbearer, a top advisor, a trusted confidant of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is also an Israelite. But he's the descendant of people who stayed in exile rather than returned to Jerusalem. And after a hundred years, this former refugee family is now old money with serious political power. So Nehemiah is an Israelite, but he's also thoroughly Persian. So how does this thoroughly Persian guy react when his brother Hanani comes back from a trip to Jerusalem with the bad news that the walls are still in ruins? He breaks down weeping. He mourns and he fasts and he prays for days. This is because Nehemiah's connection to Jerusalem and the people who live there isn't just the proud affection that many immigrants retain for their ancestral homeland. No, Nehemiah, or Jerusalem matters to Nehemiah as much as it does because of God's covenant with Israel. The covenant between God and Israel was what made Israel Israel. Scripture records God saying to the Israelites, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And elsewhere in Scripture, in Psalm 147, we read that God has revealed his laws and decrees to Israel and he has done this for no other nation. That's the essence of this covenant. It's a sacred agreement between two parties. The covenant made Israel God's 
people. And here in Psalm 147, we see that Jerusalem is God's city. It's the place of the covenant. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, the psalm says. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jerusalem, the Lord strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders. You see the themes here. Israel is a nation set apart as a witness to God's faithfulness, and Jerusalem is set apart as their place. So Jerusalem's borders matter. It's a place that God's going to build up. It's a place to which God will gather exiles. It's a place where he will heal the brokenhearted, binding their wounds. So if Jerusalem's walls are in ruins, it's not just an infrastructure problem. It's a sign that the covenant hasn't been fully restored. Now remember, the reason for the exile in the first place was that the Israelites broke their covenant with God over and over and over again. So their return to Jerusalem was a sign of God's faithfulness, that he hadn't abandoned them. But here, Nehemiah is learning that the exiles have been gathered, but not healed. And that's why it's hurt so bad, because the covenant's not fixed. So what's Nehemiah do? What's Nehemiah do? Does he leap into action? Does he form a wall builders committee? Does he draft a budget? No, he does none of those things. Nehemiah prays. He spends days in penitent prayer, fasting and humbling himself before God. A slow, unhurried determination to get at the heart of the matter by sitting with God in prayer. To remember who God is and to remember who he, Nehemiah, is before God. Now, in later chapters, we're going to see a distinctive habit of Nehemiah, the arrow prayer, quick prayers in the midst of action. But what grounds his ability to pray on the fly like that is that he first lays this deep foundation of quiet contemplation. And only later, after some days have passed, does he finally speak. And what does he say then? Take a look at a Bible if you have one handy. Feel free to hit pause, pull it up on the screen. When Nehemiah speaks, the first thing he says is he names God as the one who keeps his covenant of love with, with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, Nehemiah's prayer begins with an appeal to who God is. And everything hangs on this because people are fickle. We do right, we do wrong, we have seasons of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, but not God. That's what Nehemiah says to God. You are the God who is faithful to your covenant. And then Nehemiah acknowledges his people's sin. They haven't kept God's law. There's a reason the covenant hasn't been fully restored. The walls aren't in ruins because they forgot how to make cement. The walls are in ruins because they've forgotten God. They still haven't remembered him fully. Notice here, too, how Nehemiah recognizes he's part of the problem. It's not just those bad people, but Nehemiah himself and his family who haven't followed the law. And then he pleads for God to remember God's own word, how God said that if the Israelites were unfaithful, they'd be scattered, which happened in the exile, but if they return and obey, God will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, Jerusalem. In other words, Nehemiah is saying, God, you've gathered your people. 
God, won't you finish the work of restoration you've already begun? Don't give up on us. Let us return to your law and build us up. And then he concludes by asking for God to make the Persian king sympathetic to Nehemiah's request to lead the rebuilding. And we'll hear more about that next week. Nehemiah gets news that drives him to his knees. And he takes the time, and it takes a long time, to get his soul right before God. And then when he finally speaks, he hangs all his hope on the shape of God's character. That God said he will restore what he has scattered, and God will be true to God's word. Nehemiah is a powerful man, but the shape of his hope is not his own capacity. The shape of his hope is God's character. When I first meditated on this passage, you know what jumped out at me? It's this. Why did Jerusalem need a wall at all? Like, why did that matter to Nehemiah? Because remember, the exile happened in the first place when the Israelites trusted their own military strength for their security. That's what broke their covenant. Basically, they trusted walls instead of God. So here, if God's brought them back from exile, if God's done it, if God's keeping them safe, what's the point of a wall? Why not just rebuild the temple in the middle of a city that doesn't need a wall because God's taking care of them? And I think the answer is because hope needs a shape. Hope needs a shape. The temple at the center of the city, the wall to mark its borders, that's the shape of God's restored covenant. Shape is the difference between hope and optimism. Optimism doesn't have the shape. It's just this formless idea that everything will work out okay, even though that never happens. And you know what? Optimism was an early casualty of this pandemic. But hope... Over the past year, hope's taken a lot of concrete forms, hasn't it? The news that COVID didn't hit kids as hard, the angle of a declining case trend line, the data about masks working, the efficacy percentages of these absurdly amazing vaccines produced in an unfathomably short time. The pandemic taught us to find shapes for our hope the way a cliff face teaches a rock climber to find handholds, because sometimes it's felt like only a pinky finger is holding us back from the abyss. Jerusalem sa scripture says Jerusalem is built as a city that is bound firmly together. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. Peace be within your walls. The irony is that we've lived for a year behind closed doors and it's this pandemic's lack of borders that's doing us end. Like, when does this end? What are its limits? And when you are staring down the shapeless, endless void of numbness or exhaustion or dread, what you need is a wall, something to mark space, a hope with shape. I think that's the spiritual meaning of this passage for us as a people longing to rebuild lives and communities after a terrible season. When the walls are in ruins, there's still work to do, but God will be faithful to God's promises. Like Nehemiah, the shape of our hope is God's character, who God is and was and will be forever. Forever. 
Except the covenant that shapes our hope isn't the particular covenant that God made with Israel. The covenant that shapes our hope is the fulfillment of that covenant. The new covenant sealed by Jesus' blood on the cross. This is the covenant that offers all people, all nations, return from the exile of sin and the final restoration of peace in the heavenly Jerusalem that God has prepared. This is the covenant that calls us to repentance, like Nehemiah, recognizing that our hearts and minds and words and deeds are so often so far from God. This is the covenant that the God who made us will never forsake us, not even in death. Jerusalem, a city bound firmly together, or as another translation has it, built at unity with itself. At a spiritual level, Jerusalem restored is an image of a life restored, a city, a life built at unity with itself, with God dwelling at its center and with walls demarcating its peace. And within those walls, there's no fear. There's no guilt, there's no hypocrisy, there's no violence, no lies, no hate, no anger, no addiction, just peace and love. I can't promise that Jesus will make all your circumstances happy. You know that would be a lie. Because I fear there are rough years ahead for all of us. What I will promise is that Christ can give you a life where your happiness is not ruled by your circumstances. A life where day by day, season by season, your heart is increasingly set free from passing pleasure and pain and set on things eternal. This is what the new normal can be if, like Nehemiah, we place our hope not in our own capacity but in God's character of faithfulness. God is faithful. Won't we respond with faith? Like when a stranger holds open a door for us, we hustle up so we don't keep them waiting. And God's never-ending faithfulness holds the door open to eternal life. Will we, will we drag our heels? Or will we dash forward to lay hold of what's offered? Maybe your new normal is a fresh start. Maybe your new normal is restoration. Oh, church, won't God do it? That's the vision of Nehemiah. That's the vision we'll be chasing over the course of this series. So, so now what? Seriously, now what? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the Father's faithfulness. The Holy Spirit is his seal. And you, you glorious beloved of God, you children of the risen King, you are his people forever and ever, world without end. Amen.